The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au That's www.noblebaptist.org.au Well, good morning again. We're very, very glad that you are here this morning. I'm going to invite you to take your Bible to the book of Isaiah in chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible with you, in the bulletin inside there is a blue sheet. looks like this, or maybe a green sheet. It'll have all the verses you need. You can follow along with there as well. Well done to the musicians, too. Well done. Isaiah chapter 12, and we'll read verses 1 to 6. Isaiah 12, and beginning at verse 1. And Isaiah writes and says, You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. For though you were angry with me, your anger is turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be known, made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. It is my commitment to tell you the truth about God and what it means for you and I. I will not simply tell you what you want to hear or what we want to hear. It is not my goal to make you feel better about yourself. I will not tell you just how to have your best life now. I want to tell you how to truly live, both for now and for all of eternity. I must deliver God's message of good news to us all so that we can hear his voice speaking into our own hearts so that we can all have faith in God, so that we can all turn away from sin and know the comfort that only God gives us. All of that is far better than anything I can say to make you feel good about yourself. You might ask, why do we need to hear this message? God designed us all for something far greater than the mere existence of birth and preschool and grade school and high school and uni and jobs and sports and marriage, kids, career, retirement, sickness and death. God designed us for something far better than that. God designed us all to truly live and to know the infinite heights of unrestrained joy. God designed us to know him deeply and intimately, not merely for this life, but for all of eternity. God designed us both to glorify him and live in the heights of joy, to know what it is to be truly happy. The Bible is the word of the living God. It's without error. It communicates to us God's mind. And we want to hear what he has to say. 
I want you to notice in our text who it is that's talking. Isaiah is speaking to one who will receive God's salvation. Isaiah is describing for them what they will do and say once they have received God's salvation. They will look back and they will recall that God has become their salvation. And as you read the text, you can hear the joy that comes through. With joy they will draw water. They will give thanks to His name. They will make His deeds known among the peoples. They will sing praises to God for He has done gloriously. And so this message, in a sense, is like going to the doctor. You sit down with the doctor and he looks across at you. He takes his glasses off and he, he looks at you for a moment. He says, there's bad news and there's good news. And there's a warning to follow. There is bad news in this text for all of us. And the bad news is that God is angry. But there's also great good news that God's anger has been turned away. And our response to the good news is that we will trust and we will not be afraid. And then finally, at the end of this message, there will be a warning for all of us to consider and to hear. So first of all, the bad news. Notice in verse one, the Isaiah writes and says, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, God is angry with us. I know that's not the politically correct message. That so many want to hear. But the truth of the Bible is that God is angry with us. You say, why? Why would God be angry with me? And the reality is he's angry with us because all of us have sinned. The Bible says in Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, it's on your note sheet. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. God is not only angry with those that we consider to be bad people. God is angry with all of us because the reality is all of us have sinned. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And some of you may be thinking, what is sin? And how do I know that I've committed? I mean, what gives me the right to tell you that you're a sinner? Well, the authority of the word of God is the way we test to see whether we are truly sinners or not. Sin number one is our failure to obey God's words. And let me give you some examples. You can test yourself to see where you land. The Bible says in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 12, Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So let me ask you the question. Have you honored your parents every single day of your life from the first to the very end? And if you put your hand up and say, yes, I have, I would like your parents' phone number because I'd like to phone them and check and see if it's true or not. The reality is none of us have done that. In Exodus chapter 20 in verses 13 to 17, it says, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, nor shall you covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. 
The reality is all of us have coveted and wanted something that we do not have, that God has not blessed us with. One of the truest marks, one of the surest examples of the fact that we are all sinners is you walk through a shopping center and you watch a little fellow walking along behind his parents. And you can always tell because the little fellow wants something because he's stomping along behind his mother and he's usually shouting at the top of his lungs to try and embarrass his mother into conforming to what he wants. And I'll never forget the words, but I want it. And he just wants it. His little sin nature wants that thing that he has not been allowed to have. And the Bible says you shall not covet. It's exactly what that is. Coveting is wanting something that God has not blessed us with. You shall not murder. We think, oh, I've never committed murder. But the Bible says if we get angry with our brother, it's almost the same thing. The Bible says we shall not commit adultery. You say, oh, I've never, I've never committed adultery. Just a second. Jesus said, if you look at a woman with lust in your eyes, the reality is you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. So are you a sinner on that simple test? Not in my eyes, not before the scripture or before the scriptures, but certainly before God's eyes. Are you a sinner on that level? Sin is also our failure to meet God's standard of behavior. The Bible says in Leviticus chapter 11 and verse 44, and God is speaking to his people, Israel, and he's called them out of the land of Egypt. He's given them a very special place. And this is what God demands of them. He says, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. That is the standard which God expects of every single one of us. The Bible says in the book of Habakkuk, I believe it is, that God is so holy that his eyes cannot behold. He cannot even look upon one that is not holy. Anything that is not holy, God cannot even consider it and look upon it. To be unholy is to be defiled and scarred and stained by sin. Those sins that we committed... Not honoring our parents, taking something that doesn't belong to us, telling lies. All of those those things are sin and they mark and stain and defile us. Defile us. Sin is also our failure to glorify God. All of us have been created with a very specific and a very great purpose. And it's more than to play hockey or play soccer or play footy. It's more than to play violin or to paint great pictures. It's more than to do all those kind of things. God has designed every single one of us with unique talents and unique abilities that we might use those talents and abilities to glorify Him above all else. You see, the Bible says... For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. You can translate that last phrase there. All have sinned and failed to glorify God. Because our sin does not glorify God. And the things that we do when it doesn't glorify God, it brings His name. It brings shame to Him in that sense. 
God is the greatest, most exalted being in existence. God is invisible, infinite and immense. God is all-powerful, all-knowing and unchanging. He is good and gracious, just and righteous. God, by His very existence and character, deserves to be glorified, to be talked about, to be considered and studied and wondered at. God deserves to be glorified by us. And the question we must ask ourselves is, have we glorified God in all that we do? Do we play soccer or footy to make God's name great? Do we play music to make God's name great? Do we paint pictures and do drawings to make God's name great? Do we go to work as engineers and architects and lawyers and doctors and IT specs and, and, and uh, carpenters and plumbers and all those other things? Is, do we do everything that we do to glorify God above all else? Or are we doing it to bring fame to our own name? The reality is we've sinned by failing to glorify God. Sin is also our failure to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus one day was asked by one but somebody else walking by, what is the first and the greatest commandment? And he quoted Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5. It says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And you might be able to sit here this morning and say, you know, I've never committed adultery. I haven't even looked lustfully at a woman. You might be able to say, you know, I've never told a lie. You might be even be able to say, I've never stolen anything. But here's my next question to you. Have you loved God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind and all your strength every single minute of every day of all of your existence? The reality is that none of us have. We have, as Paul says in Romans, all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But why is God so angry at sin? I mean, Isaiah says, you will say in that day, I will give thanks to your Lord for though you were angry with me. Why is God angry? Why does God have to get in such a state about our sin? Well, the reality is our disobedience of God's word offends him. Just as surely as when your parents tell you to go and clean up your room and you decide to do something completely else, that act of disobedience offends and angers your parents. The reason why that happens is to help us understand the fact that God is angry with sin and sinners. Our failure to glorify God offends Him. Our failure to glorify God is to treat Him as despised, to think little or nothing of God at all. Our failure to do that offends God. Our failure to love God offends Him. Our sin and disobedience by those acts, we have become God's enemies and God is rightly angry with us. He created us. He designed us with a purpose. And we have completely ignored it. We have gone everyone our own way. We have walked away from God. We've thought nothing of Him. In fact, we have reared up in rebellion against God and said, we will not have God to rule over us. Each of us in our hearts. And God demands payment from us for our sin. The Bible says in Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
God's anger at us resulted in our being sentenced to death. And the reality again is I will not stand here and tell you lies about God's response to our sin. It is not pleasant. It is very bad news. Just as surely, in fact, far beyond when the doctor sits you down and says you have cancer and it's very bad. So God's news for us about our sin is very bad news. God's people rebelled against him in the Old Testament. And this is what he said in Exodus 32 and verse 10. He's speaking to Moses, the leader of God's people. And he says, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, that I may consume them. They had sinned against God. They had disobeyed Him. And God in anger wanted to be set free that His wrath, His righteous, holy indignation might rear up and burn hot against the people of God. Nahum verse chapter 1 and verse 2, the Bible says, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries and keeps wrath for His enemies. It's bad news. And one of the things that we must each confront is the fact that we are sinners and that God is angry at us for our sin. But, my friend, the news doesn't end there. The doctor sits you down and says, there's bad news. And you hear all that and you say, okay, I heard the bad news. What's the good news? Lay that on me. I want to hear some of that. The good news is so much better than the bad news. And it's right in that same verse. He says, the good news is God's anger has been taken away. How can God's anger be taken away? Certainly not by my death. My death in hell for all of eternity. Your death in hell for all of eternity will never be sufficient to fully remove and satisfy the anger of Almighty God. Christ died for us. And his death is sufficient to take away the anger of God. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3 and verse 25, that God put forward Christ Jesus as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And you say, what in the world is propitiation? I can't even pronounce it properly. Never mind. Know what it is. What's propitiation? Well, the definition of propitiation. I can't even say it. The definition of propitiation is right in our text. Turned away. It's exactly what it means. God's anger was propitiated. It was turned away by Jesus' death. Jesus' death turned the anger of God away. And he is no longer angry at those who trust in him. That's the exception clause. And I want you to hang on to that thought as we go through this. Christ died for us so God could display his justice. God cannot merely overlook our sin. God doesn't look down at us and say, you know what? That young man down there, that young woman down there, those older people, they're not so bad. They haven't done, well, yeah, they sinned, yeah, it's, you know, but you know what? I'm a gracious God. I'm just going to overlook. I'll just turn a blind eye towards those sins. God, in His justice, must carry out all the demands of the law. In fact, the Bible says in the book of Proverbs that God despises, He considers an unjust judge and abomination before Him. Christ died in our place 
so that God could display his justice toward us. Christ died for us instead of us so that God could display his mercy. Well, what's mercy, you say? Mercy is not getting something that you rightly deserve. I might have told you this story before, but when I was a young man living here in Australia, actually, I think it was, maybe it was Canada, I can't remember. And uh, my dad had a record, uh, it was called That'll Be the Day. And it was an old record, like when, before they had CDs and before they had tape cassettes and before they even had, they might have had eight tracks, I'm not sure, but they had old records, right? I think they're becoming popular now again. And there's old record and all, the, all these old 50s and 60s rock and roll songs, I love them, they were great. And I used to put my dad's record on when my dad wasn't home, and I'd turn up the record. He had a nice stereo with really big speakers, and I'd turn it right up until the windows were rattling. And I was playing the songs, and my dad got so sick of hearing these songs. He said, don't put that record back on the record player. And so I did the obvious thing. I waited until he wasn't at home. Then I put it back on the record player, right? Disobeying my parents, failing to honor them. And I had the thing turn up nice and loud, and I was dancing up there, you know, dancing. Anyway, uh, I was so loud I didn't hear a certain sound, like the sound of a car pulling in the driveway and the sound of the front door opening and the sound of steps coming up the steps. And, and then my father standing there just looking at me, you know, his eyes boring into mine. And I was doing the boogie and I came around, of course, oh, and judgment day had arrived. And I got sent downstairs to wait and he would be down to talk to me in a moment. And I knew by talking he meant talk like this instead of the, uh, this kind of talking. And my dad decided, you know what, it's not that big a deal. It's just a record. Why make a big deal about it? And so what he did instead was he left me there all afternoon and all into the evening. And I'm waiting and I thought, you know, my dad, maybe he's forgotten. Maybe he's not coming. It's getting late. It's only what, 530. I'll go to bed. And so I went to bed and went to sleep. And my dad chose to have mercy on me in that moment. But the reality is, it was not mercy mixed with justice. It was mercy and complete injustice. Because he had promised me, if you put that record back on the record player and play it again, you will get, you know what, right? The reality is that Christ died for us. He died to display God's justice and he also died to display God's mercy because God withheld from me what I rightly deserved and instead poured it all out on the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ died for us so God could display his grace. Grace is the unearned favor from God. Grace is God's kindness given to someone who has no right to it. Nobody forced God to send Christ to die for us. God in favor and kindness and grace sent Jesus to die for you and I. You know, brothers and sisters, the older I get, the more I walk with the Lord Jesus, the more I study scripture and the more I study, especially the attributes of God. And the theology of salvation, the more it just crashes down on me, the grace of God. Kindness unimaginable in its extent. I who deserved absolutely every, ang- every length of God's justice and anger and in kindness towards me, he allowed someone to take my place. Christ died for us so God could display his love. 
People sometimes ask the question, how is it that a loving God could send someone to hell? And the answer is that God in unimaginably rich love and kindness sent his only son to die in our place. That's true love. True love is to desire the best for the one whom we love. It's to desire their good, their betterment, their increase. And God desired our best. And in his true love, he sacrificed so that we might know the living God. We might have forgiveness of sins. We might have mercy. God displayed his love for us in that Christ died for us. We read the verse earlier, but it's worth reading again. For God so loved the world. Another way to translate that verse is like this. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his only son that we might not perish, but have eternal life in his presence. The Lord Jesus Christ, who is truly man, suffered for us. He suffered tiredness and pain and hunger and weakness. He knew what it was to be truly man and yet without any possibility to commit sin. He is sinless and undefiled, holy and pure. And for that reason, he is able to die in my place. He's able to suffer as a man for men and women and for children. God's anger is turned away because Christ suffered for us. But you know, Jesus Christ is not only truly man, he is also truly God. And Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, rose again for us. He existed as God before time began. The Son of God created all the worlds. Jesus, as God, healed the sick and caused the blind to see and the deaf to hear. He controlled the weather and he raised the dead to life. Jesus, as the Son of God, perfectly represented God to us. And when he opened his mouth and spoke... The words that he spoke to us and they record in scripture are God's very words from his heart and mind to us through the mouth of the Lord Jesus. He perfectly represented God to us. And as truly man, he perfectly represented us to God. God displayed Jesus deity by raising him from the death, because the reality is without there being personal sin, there can be no death to hold him down. He cannot be held by death. He himself had no sin. And in his dying, he cleansed us and washed us with his blood. And so we can have forgiveness of sin. The other thing that Jesus can do, truly God and truly man, is he can forgive sin. Some of you may remember the story in the book of Mark. Jesus is in the house and he's teaching the people about the things of God, the kingdom of God. And there's such a great big crowd all packed in there. And four friends who know about Jesus, they have a friend who is paralyzed from the neck down. And they bring him on a, on a stretcher and they're running through all the crowds and they get to the front door. And they try to kind of, you know, push people and they can't get in. People are so interested in hearing what Jesus has to say, they won't make way for the stretcher and these four men to get through. And so the four men get out and they, and they carry him all the way up the stairs on the outside of the building and up onto the top of the building. And in those days, what they had was logs and branches laid across the building and mud all packed in them to make like an adobe kind of structure. And that would keep the rain out. In order to dig through all that would take a considerable amount of effort. 
And you can see Jesus in your mind's eye standing there. And perhaps like other rabbis, he was sitting in the middle. And everybody's kind of sitting and standing all around him like a big natural amphitheater. And he's sitting talking and all of a sudden you hear this crack and a crumble and little bits of dirt begin to drop down onto the floor. And people begin to sort of push back and there's all of a sudden a little crack appears and fingers push through and then hands pull through. And after a lot of work and effort and hard work, all that mud is pulled aside and the branches are all broken and pulled away. And they get enough space to lower this man down on his stretcher and he lies before Jesus. And all the religious people of Jesus' day are all in that room and they're listening to everything he had to say and watching what to see what he will do. And Jesus looks at the man. You can see the man in the church looking up at Jesus. And the four friends are all leaning over, watching into the hole in the room. And they're all waiting. Stand up and walk. That's what they want to hear. He wants his legs. And Jesus finally speaks and says, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. And all the religious people, Oh, wait a minute. And they all draw back. The minds start turning. Hey, wait a minute. Who is this guy think he is? Only one can forgive sin and God alone. And Jesus, because he is truly God, he knows what's their thinking. He knows what's going on in their hearts. He says, why do you think? Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easy to say your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk. But he says that you may know. That the Son of Man, that's Jesus, has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says, stand up, walk, take your bed and go home. And the man doesn't do like the movie show where they kind of slowly, you know, like he's just recovering slowly. He bounced up on his feet, grabbed his bed and took off. <laughs> and of course, all the people are staring at Jesus. Who is this man that he forgives sin? He is Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, truly man and truly God. And God displayed him and showed him for all the world to see that he is truly the son of God by raising him from the dead. And the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 13 or 15, I believe it is, verses 5 to 7, it's not on your sheet. That he rose from the dead. He appeared to a couple, then a few more, then all the disciples over 40 days. That they could all see for good and for sure that he truly was raised from the dead. And the bad news is that God is angry with us because we have sinned. But the good news is that God's anger has been turned away. But there must be a response. Thirdly. If you notice verse 2, Isaiah writes and says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. How must we respond to such news? Remember the doctor's office? He gives you the good news and asks us to, make, to commit to a course of treatment, a lifestyle change. We must respond to good news. God's anger is turned away and the good news requires us to repent and believe. I want you to notice that these are commands to be obeyed. These are not suggestions to be considered, but they are truly commands of the living God that we must obey. The Bible says in Acts chapter 17 and verse 30. One of the apostles is preaching, I believe it's Paul, and he says the times of ignorance God overlooked. 
But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. God commands us to repent, to turn away from committing sin. You want to know more about repentance? Look in your bulletin. There's an article there on repentance and what it means. Why would we want to continue committing the same sins that got us into trouble to start with? If God has forgiven those sins and washed them away and the stain has been washed off of us, why would we want to go right back to those sins and do the same things over again? And the message of the gospel is simply this, that God's anger has been turned away and we must trust Him and obey Him. We must repent and believe. Repentance glorifies God because it displays Him of far greater delight and worth to our souls than the sin that we once wallowed in and committed. God also commands us to believe, to trust in God. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10 and verse 9, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Now put in your, in your bulletin again the article from last week on faith and what faith means. And faith is first of all knowing the truth. It is my responsibility. It's my joy. I don't like any. There's nothing I enjoy better than preaching the gospel. And telling people about the love of the Lord Jesus Christ and God's plan for salvation for them. And God's call upon all men to repent and believe the gospel and turn away from sin and be saved. But knowing those things is not enough. It's not enough to know all the facts of, of salvation. You can say, I know them and I agree with them. That's fantastic. But knowledge and agreement are still not enough. You must also commit yourself fully upon God. We use phrases like casting ourselves completely on Christ for his salvation. In that article, I use the illustration of a man who was in a burning building and up on the second floor or a third floor. And the fireman's ladder comes over and it comes closer and closer. And it comes to a point where he must reach out and grab onto the fireman's hand. And what he must do is let go of the burning building and throw himself forward and grab the hand, the arm of the man, the fireman who is reaching out to save him. And the reality is in ourselves, we cannot do it. But God gives us the strength. And when he calls us and commands us to believe in Jesus, he imparts the strength we need to reach out and grab on. But it's a full commitment. It's not hanging on to my sin in one hand and reaching off to Christ in the other. It's letting go of my sin and reaching out and grabbing on to Jesus Christ. And trusting him to save us. To trust in God is to throw ourselves fully and completely on Christ to save us from God's anger. God's anger is only turned away from those who trust in Him. God requires us to trust in Him to keep the promises He makes to us in the Scriptures. Faith is trusting in God and it glorifies Him by displaying God alone as the source of our joy, our life, and our strength. He is, as the writer even says, He is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Listen, sinner, and we are all sinners before God. Trust in God to save you. Repent of sin and turn away from your sin and believe in God. 
You might ask me how it is. How do I do that? I mean, trust and believe and repent. They're all great terms. What do they mean? What does it look like? My first question I'm going to ask you is this. Do you hate your sin? See, a lot of us love the idea of going to heaven. A lot of us love the idea of being forgiven and washed clean by Jesus' blood. But here's a far more difficult question that we must all confront and answer. Do we hate our sin? One of the things I've discovered as I've walked with the Lord for a lot of years, the older I get, the more my sin grieves me. Causes me to groan. Listen, do you hate your sin and really hate it? Do you want to be right with God? Do you want to have that great fellowship, that relationship, that intimate friendship with the living God? Not just so that you can have eternal life, but that you can glorify God in everything you do. So you can have that great joy that God promises. You read that passage, Isaiah 12, and you can see the joy in the writers as he's using the words and putting them together. There's a tremendous joy that comes when we trust and obey, when we repent of sin. Do you hate your sin? Do you want to be right with God? Then come to God in faith. Trust God to keep His promises to you. Agree with God that you are destined to face His wrath because of your sin. Take your Bibles, just stick your finger in Isaiah 12 and turn back over to John 3. I want to go back to that passage we read earlier. There is a great and famous text there that we read all the time, John 3.16. But you know, John 3.16 is attached for very good reason to John 3.17 and 18. And the context makes such a distinctive difference. Listen again to what John writes. He says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. We love John 3.16 because it talks about God's love for us. We love John 3.16 because it talks about how He gave Jesus Christ for us that we might not perish, but that we don't always go on to John 3.17 and 3.18. It talks about how He who does not believe is condemned already. The reason why I said earlier that God's anger is taken away only for those who trust and obey is this verse right here that tells me for a surety That if we do not trust and obey, if we do not walk with Jesus in faith and repentance, His wrath remains on us. We do not believe, as some do, in what's called universalism. That every single person will guarantee to be saved, that God will not send anybody to hell. You say, why do you want to finish this message talking about bad news again? Because the reality is, 
As Jesus went about teaching and preaching, He would bring His message and He'd often conclude His message with a warning. Be sure that you stay and you walk and you live in light of these truths. If you ignore them and walk away and live otherwise, then God's wrath remains on you. Whoever believes in Him should not perish, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. My friends, listen. Hear the warning that Jesus gave. He gave. That we believe there is not perishing. You say, what does perish mean? We brought in a bunch of meat last night and we, we packed in the fridge there. Uh, 35 kilograms of meat or if you like me, 84 pounds of meat. And we packed in the fridge. And as we were putting the fridge and we're closing the door, the door wouldn't shut all the way. I thought, it probably won't be a good thing if the door doesn't shut on the fridge and it stays in the fridge all night long with the door open. The fridge turns off the power and the defrost and all the meat gets a funny greenish look to it. That's perishing. It means it's no longer a good fit to be consumed. It means it's no longer able to be eaten. It's no longer there to fulfill its designed purpose, which is to give us a great lunch. And when God says... That you'll perish. What he means is you can no longer fulfill your design function and purpose in life. God designed you for two things. To glorify God and know unrestrained joy in that same moment. That as you're glorifying God and worshiping him and living for him. There is a joy that's so rich and so full in your own heart. And when we fail to believe in God and we fail to live for God, we do not glorify Him and instead we do not live in joy. And all you have to do is walk out and look at the advertising that goes on in this city. Turn on the television and look at it. Always producing some new gimmick, some new drug, some new thing. Always promising to give you something that's better than what you have now. Always promising joy or happiness in some way, shape or form. The reality is the only true joy and happiness that we will ever know is in repentance of sin, in trusting Christ and walking with Jesus. Like Isaiah said, with joy drawing water from the springs, the well of salvation. Listen, you can come to church every week or you can never come to church again. You can fool everybody on the outside as to where you truly stand before God. But when the lights go out at night and you're lying on your bed. And the thoughts of your heart begin to crowd in. You in your own heart know where you stand before God. You know whether or not it is right between you and God. And the Bible says that God commands all men everywhere to repent. Jesus said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That's the book of Acts, I believe. Those two commands go side by side. And you can listen to this whole message and you can start thinking about lunch out there. And you can maybe turn your thoughts off and think about something else and try and drown out God's voice in your heart. But what will you do when you stand before God? What answer will you give when he asks, what have you done with Jesus Christ, my son? I sent him to die 
on a cross to take away, to wash away your sin and appease my anger. What have you done with Christ? That's a question you need to consider. And I urge you with all my heart, if you want to know more, if you want to understand, if all this just, you're hearing it and there's something that just wants inside of you to know more, but you just can't understand it all, I plead with you, come talk to me. Come talk to your friends, those who know the Lord Jesus, and ask, find out from them what it means. Ask them to explain it to you. But don't rest until you settle in your own heart and in your own mind where you truly stand before God. I'm going to invite you all to stand. We're going to pray. We're going to get Cameron and Hev to come up. We're going to sing a song before we go out and enjoy lunch. Let's let's stand together. Loving Heavenly Father, we come before you again this morning and we give thanks, O God. That though you were angry with us, your anger is turned away and you comfort us. Father, we can say those who know know you, those who have repented of sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. We can say we will trust and not be afraid. Father God, we thank you for a great and a rich salvation that we have through the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the fact that your anger has been turned away. And Father, when we consider for a moment the reality of the horror of the cross, as Jesus hung there and suffered and bled and died. And Father, he suffered under the justice of God. He suffered, O God. That he might give us mercy, that you might give us mercy. He suffered, O oh God, that he might display grace to us, your kindness toward us. But Father, we give you thanks. We rejoice, O oh God. We would worship this morning because death had no hold over him. The grave could not hold him. His body suffered no corruption, no breakdown, no decay. Because there was no sin in him. Not even possible for him to commit sin. And he was able to bear our sin for us. And having finished the work. Father, after three days, you raised him from the dead and he walked out of that tomb victorious and conquering. And Father, we thank you for the reality that that we know that he has been raised and he is seated at your right hand beside you. And he is praying for us even as we pray right now. Father, I pray for this whole church, for all of us that are gathered here this morning. Father, I plead with you that by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would work in the hearts and the lives of every single one of us. Impress as deeply as possible upon each of us the reality of our sin, but the sure hope of the gospel that your anger has been turned away and you comfort us. Father, I plead with you for those standing here who know in their own hearts where they stand before you. Father, I pray that the Spirit of God would give them no rest until they turn in faith and repentance and cry out for forgiveness of sin. Father, we thank you. We rejoice, O God, that we can have forgiveness of sin. 
And we can have a new life. Father, thank you for the great promise of Scripture. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. Not a warmed over one, not a regenerate, not a, a renovated one, but a brand new creature in Christ. Father, we ask you for your blessing. We plead with you, O oh God, that you would do your work amongst us this day. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.